You're listening to the We Love Equity Real Estate Show, a podcast that discusses the intricacies of real estate investing with your host, Marcus E. Maloney. Marcus is a real estate investor best known for being the equity king. He's been awarded that moniker because he and his team find amazing real estate deals. He will be talking with investors who have done some transformational things in the real estate industry. They'll discuss their process, their strategies, and how their investments transform their lives and the communities they invest in. We welcome you to the We Love Equity Real Estate Show. You're never going to know everything, period, at any stage of any business you're in, because there's always another level, right? There's always something more, right? And you're never going to know exactly what you need to do to be getting there. But somebody has done it, right? So go find that person that's done it and, and you can copy in business, right? <laughs> the We Love Equity Show is brought to you by Azria, widely recognized as an outstanding resource for real estate investors with exceptional education, networking, and support, along with profit-enhancing benefits and all aspects of real estate investing. Visit Azria at www.azria.org. That's visit Azria at www.azreia.org. Hello, We Love Equity family. How are you on today? I'm excited. I hope you're excited. On today, we have a very special guest from the Northeast, and he's positioned right now in Boston. We have Axel Ragnarsson, who is a multifamily guy. He's doing some syndications. He started with smaller multifamily and worked his way up to bigger deals. So if you're looking and listening and you want to get into passive income, this is exactly the person you need to speak with and you need to talk to and you need to listen from. So you guys always know what to do. I want you to jot down, take some notes, grab your pen, grab your paper, grab an iPad, jot down some notes. And then that way, Afterwards, if you need to get in touch with Axel, he'll provide his contact information. He has a podcast as well, so you can get more information from him. I'm not here to hoard you as my family only, but I'm here to share as well. So, Axel, how are you doing, sir? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great. I appreciate the invite and uh, looking forward to, to getting into it with you here. Well, thank you so much, man. We're on the show. We're normally talking about, you know, transactional based real estate. So wholesaling, flipping, things like that. But I wanted to come from a different perspective. I wanted to talk about passive income because I'm a passive income guy as well. And you're a passive income guy. So tell us how you got started, man. How did you go from doing whatever you were doing prior to real estate to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll give you the the spark notes and I'll try not to be too long-winded here, but so I got into the business late in college. So my junior year is actually when I did my first deal, but before that I was just that the stereotypical college kid trying to trying to make a buck <laughs> doing anything except gotcha. get a job. So <laughs> I was buying and selling whatever I could get my hands on and and ended up buying and selling cars for a few years and, and made some I guess decent money at the time for for me. And so I was buying and selling cars, trying to try to figure out what's what's bigger than this, more expensive than this that I can go out and and flip or you know buy and sell, and that led me to real estate. So the reason I got interested in real estate was through the avenue of flipping houses. And so I was watching HGTV, going online, trying to figure out how I could go out there and flip houses, and ended up finding bigger pockets like a lot of people do. And and this is 19, 20 years old, and. Uh, while I'm learning about flipping houses, I, I stumbled upon rental real estate and you know income producing real estate, multifamily real estate, and the whole concept of passive income. And that kind of stopped me in my tracks. And, and for me, I was like, you can do the work once and get paid every month forever. I mean, that sounds like a, a pretty good deal. So basically what I did was ditch the whole strategy of flipping houses. And I was like, how, do, how can I buy rental properties or small multifamily mm-hmm. properties? So was fortunate enough to be working at an internship where I was surrounded by a couple of guys who were actually doing private money lending for real estate deals. It was a financial firm I was working at. And basically over a year, probably more than that, maybe a year and a half, I was learning about real estate. And and over that time, I bugged them enough to where I I got a soft commitment from them to kind of lend on um, any deal that I find. So Wow. Okay. So the first deal I did was a three unit that I found on Craigslist, junior year of college and made a bunch of mistakes on that one. The the quick story on that is just slightly below market purchase price, raised the rents a little bit. I thought I was going to be able to go out and refinance it and hold on to it, but 
quickly realized that no bank was going to give me a loan considering I was just unemployed <laughs> essentially yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and had no, no tax returns and no W-2, no pay stubs, nothing. So basically I stumbled upon having to figure out one, how I was going to go out and refinance these deals. And what I ended up doing with that first one is going out and selling it. And I did okay. okay. I didn't make a ton of money, made a little bit of money. So let's, then, let's, let's, let's kind of go back, Axel. So sure. coming out of college, well, you're still in college and you were flipping cars, kind of flipping cars, flipping cars, making you some money, enough to eat, probably buy some books, kind of take a girl out to the movie, things like that. Yeah, you know, books and beer. That's what yep, we're buying. Yep, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so then you said, I want to do something a little different. I know I want to go a little bit bigger. And you went into real estate. Did you say you read a book and then you were reading that book and that transitioned you? So it wasn't a book specifically. I think I was quite literally searching on Google or YouTube, That's like right. how to okay. flip houses. And and then any real estate related Google search is going to get you to bigger pockets. Like I think okay. everyone, a lot of people you've probably had on the show of that's oh. probably how they got their start. So for me, just started devouring every article, blog, every article, yeah. post, whatever. And uh, heard of these people that owned 30, 40, 50 units of rental property and making 60, 70 grand a year without lifting a finger. And I was like, that's exactly where I want to go. And okay. so for me, I got, a, I, I still ended up doing some flipping and I got smoked <laughs> on a couple of deals and dropped that uh, uh -huh. early into, into my real estate business and really just kind of laser focused on doing multifamily. But that was kind of how, that, that's how I found it. That's how okay. I got, uh, got the bug. Okay. So tell me about this internship because really you, you stumbled into good company, really being with these guys that would be able to provide some funding for you. So how did that happen? So I was, I was interning at, a, at an angel investment group. It was mm -hmm. a really small one up in New Hampshire. It was like 15 guys. They get together once a month and they, there'd be three, four startup companies that come in and pitch that were looking for seed round funding or early stage funding. Some of the guys would invest in them. Some of them wouldn't, but it was basically just first Tuesday of the month from nine to noon, these guys would get together. And basically I was part of a few groups in, in college and basically I kind of forced my way <laughs> into an internship there, which was great. I was just taking notes and setting up the meetings and doing a bunch of admin stuff. But two of the guys there, they did hard money lending as well as you know their day job and as well as running their own business and as well as investing in companies here and there. So great company in that respect in terms of the, you know being around those guys. Okay. Um, and for me, I was like, the only way I can go buy a property is if I work with a private lender. Like, I just don't have the option to go out and get traditional financing. So it was actually pretty easy for me because I was like, this is quite literally how I have to go about this. I, even if I saved 50 grand to go put down in a place, I still want to get financing from a bank. So I was like, I have to go the private money route. And I just overheard a couple of them talk, a borrower they had that did a deal and and I was like, oh, you guys lend on real estate too? And, and basically clued them in on everything I was doing. And I basically said, hey, if I were to bring a deal that kind of roughly hit these metrics, you know, it was 20% below market, somewhat stabilized, not a big rehab, I'll still bring money to the table. I basically pitched a sample deal and they were like, yeah, if you find something, we'd lend on it. These are kind of the terms. And it took a while to find the deal, but, but I had that lined up for when I did go out okay. and find one. And I, and I asked you all of that because I just wanted the listeners to know that proximity is power. You wouldn't have been able to do that without being in the right circle and encamped around the right people. So that's mm -hmm. great. Did you ever have that apprehension in the back of your mind saying, but I'm 19, I'm 20 years old. What, what gives me the audacity to think that I can go out here and start multifamily without really cutting my teeth on single family? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I, I honestly, I didn't have it as it related to going out and buying a deal. I more had it as it related to managing a deal. Right. And, and in terms of like going to pick up rent and you're 20 years old and you're half the age of the person you're picking up rent from, yep. it's just a weird, that was weird. And also meeting contractors. And that was more of the age kind of nervousness part for me. As for finding a deal, I was really confident in just all the education that I put myself through. Like I'd listened to four podcasts a day. I was just, just like downloading information yourself. out of my yeah. head. And I was like, when I go find a deal, I think I'm going to be really confident that it makes sense. And when I did, I was like ready to pull the trigger. No doubt. Just, I just did it. Um, but as for single family, I was lucky enough in that the market that I was in. So I was going to school out at University of New Hampshire, which is Seacoast in New Hampshire. This deal was, I mean, no one's going to know where this is. Chester, New Hampshire. It's like a market in Southern New Hampshire. It's a very small town. Okay. And, uh, 
there just wasn't any single family that worked as rentals. Every single family was just too expensive. New Hampshire has high property taxes. So you just can't find single family rental you know, properties that cash flow. It's just not something that you can find in that market at all. So for me, it was like, I had to go look for a two to four unit property. So it again, forced me to narrow it down. So yep. maybe I would have done single family if that was an option. If I lived in like a Midwestern market, maybe I would have gone out and bought the $70,000 house, but I just, it just wasn't an option for me. Okay. Well, that's good. I mean, it, it, because of the limitations of the region, it pushed you in, in the right direction. So tell me about this three unit. You found it on Craigslist at the time. You got all of this information from bigger pockets and online and podcasts and things like that. Did you have confidence in running your numbers and knowing everything about that deal and talking to the seller? Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I was really confident in my numbers. Um, that was what I was most confident in. And, and something that I was focusing on doing as well was I identified a couple of people that were just way more successful than me that were okay with giving me 30 minutes of their time every few weeks or a month or something like that. And I just ran my numbers by those people. And so doing the underwriting on small multifamilies, really, it's, it's actually pretty simple when you boil it down, right? You got a vacancy rate, you put some money aside for repairs, maintenance, capex, all that fun stuff. Be conservative with your expenses, and 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 that's really all you got to do, right? So for me, I got the hang of that pretty quickly, and and I was always willing to ask for a second opinion, mainly for the bigger stuff like rehabs and some of the more expensive things, how to structure financing or how to what 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 does a new roof cost in this neighborhood, right? Which is stuff that you don't really know when you get started. Right, so right. I, I leaned on other people for that which was really helpful. Speaking with the seller was definitely more of a challenge because until you go through a real estate transaction, <laughs> you don't really know what's like going on. So it's like, it's honestly a lot easier to just do your first deal with like an agent or, or with somebody that's done it in terms of like, where does the earnest money go? How, like, uh -huh. <laughs> how, how long do you put for a home inspection on the contract? When do you bring the lender in? Like what is, especially if you're doing private money, like what do the docs look like? So a lot of that stuff I was, I was actually leaning on the seller to help me out with. And he was, he was a great guy willing to help. He was patient. He was just an aging landlord that wanted to get out of the business. So it wasn't like he was, he thought he was getting taken advantage of by someone. Right. So, so we had a great relationship and, and he, he was actually experienced in real estate. So he kind of helped me along with some of that stuff. We used the okay. title company he recommended. They held the earnest money. I, I found my own inspector, but like every, it was very accommodating throughout the whole process. And I mean, I think that's important, right? Is like if you're dealing with a seller that that really doesn't want to be in that transaction, everything's just going to be a lot more challenging. Yeah, but yeah. but it was all in all, it was that's what I was more concerned about was just the logistical process of closing the deal. Well, I mean, that's good. I mean, you got lucky. You you well, I don't want to say lucky, but you you put positioned yourself in the right way. I mean, you had the funny funding kind of lined up, was able to find a deal. You had a seller that was accommodating and willing to work with you, things like that. You knew your numbers. So that was, that was key. That was the most important thing. Cause I know a lot of people, they would, they would jump out there and say, Oh, I want to buy a multifamily, a small multifamily, but they don't know what those CapEx expenditures should be. They don't know what the vacancy rate that they should run it at. Should, should they run it at a 6% vacancy rate or 12% vacancy rate? But you knew that. So um, hindsight is always 2020. But guys, just like Axel said, if you don't know, feel free to ask. Make sure you get in the proximity of people that already know. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the high level takeaway, right? Is you're never going to know everything, period, at any stage of any business you're in, because there's always another level, right? There's always mm -hmm. something more, right? And you're never going to know exactly what you need to do to be getting there. But somebody has done it, right? So go find that person that's done it and, and you can copy in business, right? <laughs> it's yep, different than yep. school. You can cheat off people. So for me, I was like, what, like, if I'm going to use an expense ratio to kind of analyze a multi a multifamily property in this area of, of town, like, what do you think is fair? And I just had a, a trusted guy in my network. He's like, if you're doing your numbers and your expenses are less than 45 or 50% of your gross income, you're underestimating. You need to go back and really dig in and make sure that you're, you know, analyzing it mm -hmm. correctly. So I just had bang, there's just a accurate local back of the napkin check for all the deals I look at. And then I just asked somebody, hey, new kitchen, new bath, paint and floors in a, in a unit. What does that cost typically around Manchester, New Hampshire? Oh, yeah. it's probably 16, 17, 20 bucks a foot. Oh, there we go. Now I can go analyze rehabs, right? So, I mean, that was, that was me I, in terms of, that was my core strategy was 
and other people have done this. Let's just go take what they've done. <clears throat> yeah, exactly, man. And that's one of the things that I that I do, and I also tell people is, if you don't know, get out there and ask. One of the things when people are looking to do rehabs or looking to wholesale or something like that, they always say, I don't know how to estimate the rehab costs. I said, well, just go to your local market, ask contractors, ask other wholesalers, ask other flippers, hey, what? I got a light fluff and buff rehab that I want to do. How much to be uh, per square foot? I'm just doing carpet and paint. Boom, you got that number for light. I'm doing a medium rehab, but I'm going to change out the bathroom, change out the kitchen, new flooring, new lighting. How much is that? Now you got your medium. And then, hey, I got to do a gut rehab. How much should I spend price per square foot? And now you got it. So now three sectors. And once you get that deal or looking at that deal, you can kind of analyze from those three different perspectives. So, man, great point, Axel. Great point. <clears throat> and so, it, I mean, and, mm -hmm. and just to add, quickly add on that too, and then just because I know you want to probably move on to another topic here, but the other piece to harp on is like all of this confidence comes from just a complete overload of education. <laughs> like I probably listened to 50 podcasts before that deal on estimating rehab costs. Like I just... Mm -hmm. I was just like, I was like, I don't think I can know more, but I mean, obviously you think that, right? right. <laughs> so you do it and then you're like, holy crap, I didn't know any of this stuff. But, but I was just like, I was listening. I remember I was listening to home improvement podcasts okay. to just get a feel for the construction process. Like I was listening to all this different stuff. So I think confidence comes from competence just, just fundamentally. So if you're feeling nervous, like just, you can, you can overeducate yourself too much and you got to take action, but like, make sure that you're doing the work to feel like, like what you're doing. Yeah. Get that sound foundation. Like you said, it's plenty of resources out there. I mean, it's podcasts. I have a podcast. You have a podcast. It's online education. You can pay for mentorship. You can do all kinds of things to get that, to get that knowledge. So it's, it's no excuse for you to say, I didn't know. Or I don't know how, because it's the opportunity is out there. So Axel, tell us about this, this three unit. This is your first deal. Um, you got it. You closed it. The, the seller and everybody in the community helped you close this deal. You got it now. Was it already tenanted? Was it vacant? What, what kind of give us the dynamics behind it? Yeah. So there was, there was tenants in there. The rents were a little bit below market. I think they were all around like 900 to 950 when they should have been 1,050 to 1150 kind of range, depending on the unit. It didn't really need too much work. I think we initially just did, like we painted the common areas. We replaced the uh, coin-op washer dryer. Okay. We did some plumbing work, some electrical work. I think we did part of the roof. So it wasn't like we had to put a ton of money into it. I say we, I mean, it was just me, but I had just the, yep. uh, just all the, the people that were helping me out. <laughs> yeah. But, but so what, what ended up happening with that was, the goal was raise the rents, go out there, refinance, right? And what ended up happening was, is like I was I mentioned earlier, couldn't get it refinanced because I couldn't get traditional financing. And so you didn't you know, think about that prior to, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, kind of just did it. And I, and I was just like, because I heard uh, a lot of folks say, Hey, you can go out there and get commercial financing from like a local bank, a local credit union. And that's yep. what I've built my business on in subsequent deals. But I, I couldn't, I didn't find a, a bank that was willing to partner with me kind of on my first one. And the only banks that I ended up finding one, but they were only willing to do like 70% loan to value. So I would have, I would have had to have brought even more money to, to refinance it. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was like, well, let me just sell this. Right. Because, and, and by the time I had sold that one, I'd already bought a couple more and was starting to really get into it. So for me, I was like, I'll sell it, kind of take some of my chips off the table with this one and roll it into another deal. And, um, but I mean, it was as, as, as for the deal itself, it was really straightforward in that we just raised the rents. I think I turned over one unit in a year or the okay. year and a half I owned it, something like that. So I only had to, you know, place one tenant. I mean, it couldn't, couldn't have been easier. It was just a really residential area, great tenant base gotcha. and um, was nice and turnkey. So how was that transition? Because a lot of people are concerned about that. When you're going from one owner to a new owner, communicating with the tenants, hey, I'm the new owner. This is where you pay your rent, so on and so forth. Were you self-managing or did you have a property manager? So I self-managed that one and... <laughs> I think that experience, it wasn't like I had a bad experience. I just lived 45 minutes away from it. And I was just like, that, that deal was like, just really pushed me down the road of, I'm not going to be self-managing for very long here. Like yep. as soon as I had a couple buildings, I hired a property manager. It was by far the best decision I made early in my business. But, mm -hmm. but basically the transition, it wasn't too bad. I mean, most tenants hate to see a property be sold because they don't know what type of owner is right. buying it. 
I think a priority of mine on that first deal, and, and even now on all the deals we do, whether it's a, a large deal where we're raising money or a small local deal, that's three units, we go in and show goodwill initially, right? So this one, we yep. came in, painted the common areas, replaced the coin off washer dryer. We improved the living conditions a little bit. And that's what we do in everything now. We'll come in and we want to improve something, right? To show that we're a good management, good ownership group. So in that respect, it was actually not that challenging in terms of just getting getting on board with the tenants. I, I didn't really change too much about how they were paying rent. I had them sign up on like an electronic portal that I was running. I think I was using Cozy at the okay. time as a property management software. So they started paying electronically and and that was great. It was so simple. It was, and, but it was just really because it was a good neighborhood. <laughs> I, I took over a couple of deals after that that gotcha. were, <laughs> were not in great neighborhoods. And that was a different experience being a young guy going to collect rent from just some real tough folks that were just mm-hmm. like, they smell weakness, right? And they're just going to lean on it. So that was, there were other buildings that there was a little bit tougher to make that adjustment, adjustment, I should say, but that okay. first one was pretty simple. <clears throat> so normally, and, and the reason why I asked that is because I kind of went through that, went through that process. And what we did was during the, during the inspection period and everything like that, we got authorization from the seller and we sent all of the tenants a letter. Hey, we're kind of evaluating the property, seeing if we're going to purchase it. We may be the new landlords. If so, this is what you can expect. Just some quick little bullet points, just as a welcome letter, pretty much to let people know, hey, if you see some people sniffing around, it's us. We want to meet you. We want to shake your hand so we can build that that commonality and build some rapport. So naturally, we had some people that was that was willing, everything was well. And then some people, even though it was a transition, I, I paid the landlord the rent and no, I'm not paying you, things like that. So that's kind of why I brought it up. So guys listening. Make sure you get out there, as Axel said, provide that goodwill, let people know what you're doing and everything like that. Normally, you shouldn't have a problem with that transition. Yeah. I mean, if you're buying a property in a solid area and you're not doing anything crazy to the to the property, I mean, usually your transition should be smooth, especially if you're taking over from a bad owner. Like a lot of the deals that we're buying, a lot of the deals that anyone buys out there at a discount of multifamily are buying them at a discount because the management was so bad mm-hmm. previously. So we come in and we we make it very clear we're just a much better management company um, and a much better ownership group. And um, that transition does become pretty easy. That said, always plan. People hate change. A lot of people yep. are going to move when a property is sold and that's just how it's going to work, right? Yep. You're not going to understand why, but it's just going to happen. We found that like really rough range, but we've been trying to track this number <laughs> and it's usually like... 20 to 30% of the tenants that we inherit are going to you know, either be somewhat troublesome, maybe give us notice to vacate, maybe not pay that first month on time. Yep. Yep. And that's just, if you buy a six unit building, probably one or two of them is going to be somewhat challenging. And if you're doing something crazy, like raising the rents a lot, or you're doing like a lot of redevelopment work on the site and you're turning the property into a construction zone for two months or something like that, that number is going to be higher, yeah, but, um, some but come in with a plan and communicate everything you're trying to do and show some goodwill in terms of improving the property right when you buy it, right? Because yep. that's going to help people want to stay. So just to get some numbers, and I know it's different in each region and each market. What are, what were you running your vacancy rate at? Was it 10%, 9%, 11%? 11%. So that deal, I think I did my underwriting at like 8%, I think is what okay. I did. 8.3% is roughly one month vacant a year in terms of just the property being empty. And that's conservative for the market that we 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 invest throughout the country. But one of the biggest markets we invest in is Manchester, New Hampshire, which has a citywide vacancy rate of like 2%. It's one of the lowest in the nation, actually. Wow. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's for a number of reasons. The biggest one being that it's not profitable to build there. So it's just, there's more people moving there and they're all, it's all the same housing same stock. Houses. So it's just... Yep. So it's tricky, right? So there, when we, when it, if a unit goes vacant and it takes us a week to turn it over, we're usually going to have at least up in one to two weeks, right? And assuming conservatively a tenant stays for a year, that's probably a six, 7% vacancy rate. So we just use eight to, to, okay. to be, to be safe. I would, I would be hesitant to use like the nat, the data point for a market as the vacancy rate. Cause it's always just going to inherently be lower than what you're going to see. Yep. So if we used two and a half percent, we do way more deals, but that's just not, you're not being conservative. So, so we use eight, I think most C-class markets throughout the Midwest probably use 10. If you're in the Southeast or like where you're at in Phoenix, right? Phoenix is absurdly hot right now. You probably yeah, get away with yeah. using a five, 6% vacancy rate. 
But yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Yep, yep. <laughs> I just wanted I just wanted to throw some numbers at some people so they can understand of what to look for and things like that. So, and then I'm gonna ask another question in regards to that. As far as your capex expenditures, how are you accounting for that? How much are you setting aside? Yeah, and this is a I mean this is a question that that will vary pretty significantly throughout yep. the country on the market that again Manchester New Hampshire where we own about a hundred doors I mean most of the stuff we own is is 1900s built which is alarming to most people throughout the country yeah. like really you built 1900 so I think every single property we own was built between 1890 and 1920 so it's older so our numbers we spend a little bit more on capex because we got 50 year old plumbing you know, yeah. you know that hasn't been replaced since 1950 and just older stuff. So typically we use just overall, we see that we run things at about a 50% expense ratio. And I'll, I'll, I'll directly answer your question about CapEx, but that's like taxes, insurance, water, sewer, common area, electric, the, the gas for when a tenant moves out in the winter, that's going to account for repairs and maintenance right. and all that stuff is roughly about, if you're making 50 grand a year, roughly 25 is going to go to expenses and the rest is you're going to use to pay your mortgage. As for CapEx, you know, I think it's right around 10 to 12% is what we're usually spending on that. Okay. But I think it's important to be accurate with your with your numbers too. Cause if you're buying a property that that had a new roof put on three years ago and and has a couple of new heating systems and has got nice siding, I think it's okay to lower that number a little bit. You want you don't want to miss out on a deal just because you got kind of right. a flat figure. Maybe that's a deal where you're using seven, eight percent to project what you're gonna spend. But for what we buy in our market, 10 to 12 is kind of what we use. We use 10 to 12 for repairs and maintenance. And sometimes we'll bump that up if it's like, we got a 20 year old roof, heating systems are all 20 years old. And we're like, we know we're going to have a few coming up, yep, yep. Um, but that's kind of our baseline. Okay. And again, I just ask that because I want people to, when they're running their numbers, they need to know what to look for. Hey, what's my cap X? What's my vacancy rate? The expense ratio. Like you said, if I'm projected 50 grand in, in rents annually, hey, but expect to only get about 25 to 20 20 grand out of that because everybody have the pie in the sky idea when it comes to being a landlord, but you got to factor in those expenses also. Mm -hmm. And if you're in an expensive market, understand that number is going to be much lower, right? Like I live in Boston. It costs the same amount to change a heating system, to change a toilet, to put a new roof on in a three unit in Boston. That's $1.2 million versus a three unit in Manchester, New Hampshire. That's $400,000. So my expense ratio is going to be a lot lower in Boston. Maybe it's in the 30s, high 20s, you know, low 30s. Whereas in Manchester, I'm renting each unit up for 1200 bucks, but it still costs me $4,500 to put in a heating system. Whereas in Boston, it's $4,500 to put in a heating system, but that unit rents for three grand a month. So, right. you know, it's, it's good to understand where you're at, where you're investing and, and how those numbers play against each other. Perfect, perfect, perfect. So Axel, let's take a brief break, hear a word from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to talk to you about scale and how you went from a small handful of deals that you were doing, properties and doors that you had to where you are now. So let's hear a brief word from our sponsors and we'll be right back with Axel. Finding real estate deals can be a challenge, but with Batch Leads, it doesn't have to be. Batch Leads has created a one-stop solution for all your real estate needs. So you can find more sellers, close more deals, and maximize revenue. Batch Leads offers a comprehensive suite of lead-generating tools that cover text messaging, skip tracing, finding comps, and much more. Batch Leads help you simplify, manage, and organize all your data in one place. Batch will help you stack your lists and identify properties that appear on multiple lists and have multiple distress indicators. These sellers are likely to be highly motivated and eager to sell. Get the most powerful and complete lead generation platform in the industry. Locate sellers, buyers, and lenders nationwide in seconds. Go to batchlead.io and use promo code WELOVEEQUITY. All right, We Love Equity family. We are back with Axel Ragmerson. It's tongue twister, <laughs> but he <laughs> is, long one. yeah, he's definitely a person to be affiliated with. He's doing a lot of deals. If you're into syndication, multifamily, investing, passive income, you really need to connect with, with Axel. So Axel, how did you transition from these handful of deals, being a mom pop operator to now hundreds of units? Yeah. So it was a couple of things, right? There was, let me call it three, I guess, main 
main decisions I made that allowed me to scale, right? And I guess just to give people context. So five years ago or so is when I did my first deal. First two, three years in the business, I was maybe buying two, three properties a year. Two years ago, I got really serious about scaling and started doing... And one of the things is I'll talk about is marketing. And mm-hmm. I think we bought 40, 50 units that year. We sold some. And so maybe we added 30 units of the portfolio. Last year, I think we bought about 50 and sold some. And then this year, we're, we've already bought about 150. So we're there's a couple of things. But the first thing was I really got serious about going off market and, and building out a process to go out there and find deals. Okay. So, so know, we were doing... Let's- Let's not gloss over for those that are new, what's off market versus on market. So off market is when you're going directly to the seller to go and buy a property versus okay. on market, which there's, there's brokers or agents involved, right? And gotcha. you're, if you're buying a property on market, you're competing with significantly more buyers than if you're buying one off market and it's just you and the seller talking. Okay. So basically that's the first thing, right? And I'll just mention the other two, we'll get into them. Second thing mm-hmm. was I got really serious about finding private investors and using private financing and private debt. Third thing is taking it even one step farther and finding equity investors and raising money from people that we're actually going to partner with and stay in the deal long term. As for as for finding deals, a couple of the things that that I focused on initially were building out an email prospecting strategy. So one of the things we did was we just pulled a really big list of owners in markets that we wanted to go out and find deals in. We we went out there and either skip traced or did Google searches or did LinkedIn searches to go find people's emails that own those properties. And then we just started reaching out to folks on a relatively systematized basis. And just our message was, hey, we're, we're interested in getting to know a little bit more about you and what your plans are with 123 Main Street. If, if you've ever thought about selling or at least hearing an offer, give us a call. If not, no big deal. We'd love to meet another investor in the market. And, okay. and I basically just started being conscious about building relationships with owners. And I think pretty much every deal we bought from like, 2019 to the end of 2020 was was through just meeting sellers through email. So gotcha. that was a great strategy. So we bought a lot of deals doing that. And I also was doing a little bit of direct mail to a small targeted list of about 600 names. And okay. I was I was like handwriting envelopes. Like I was doing all the direct mail. <laughs> I remember and those days. Yeah, I mean, so I was I was I was doing a mail merge, kind of printing them off of my own printer, handwriting the address and sending them out every couple of months. And then we did a few deals through that. And then while we were doing that too, I, I got really intentional about networking and building relationships and kind of mining my network for deals and opportunities. I was telling everyone every chance that I could possibly get to, to, to let me know if they knew of anyone that was selling a multifamily property and just getting deals through my electrician. I got deals through my insurance agent. I was getting deals you know, from wholesalers or, or brokers who are just making introductions to people. So those are the kind of three big avenues. And I was really mindful about spending time on those and actually staying consistent with them. Okay. So, so that allowed me to scale, at least in terms of finding the deals. And then I got really focused on finding private lenders to actually go out and put together the mortgages to go out and buy them. And so again, it was the same strategy. It's a lot of networking and asking around for referrals, okay. found some lenders at, you know, RIA meetups, I actually, a little, a little hack for those listening, go out and ask any closing attorneys or title companies that you work with. If they know of any private lenders, they're going to be the ones that are closing the deals for a lot of the private lenders. They're great referral sources to find private lenders. So I found a few through just our closing attorneys and our title companies and um, you know, just built out the financial side to out there and actually close on all those deals. And then just the last year, what, what kind of got us into this last stage of scaling where we're going out and buying hundred plus unit deals. It was, it was getting in touch with just past some investors, people that aren't in real estate that want to go out and put 50 grand, 75 grand, hundred grand into real estate. They don't want to deal with finding the deal, financing it, signing on the debt, managing it after it's closed, handling any of that. And that, again, that's another process of building out that infrastructure, but that enabled us to go out and actually buy bigger deals. So I guess a lot there. I'm happy to go yeah, into any yeah. specific. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we can't unpack all of that because each each one of those is an hour long conversation. But what, <laughs> yeah. I, what I wanted to ask you was, did you go out and when you were being intentional, were you going out trying to find the private lenders first or were you trying to find the deals first or were you doing it simultaneously? I was doing it simultaneously, but I was definitely spending a little bit more time looking for deals because I knew at that time, if I found a good deal and, and let's say I had you know two deals and I had a couple that were going on at the same time and I didn't have a private lender for a third, I knew if I, if I found the third deal, I would just work my ass out to go find the private lender. 
But even if I couldn't, I could either assign the contract or I could partner with somebody or just just go some other route of closing it that maybe wasn't just buying it myself. So I knew that I always had a way to make money on any deals I found. So I was probably spending 70% of my time looking for deals, 30% of my time just trying to meet and network with lenders and everything like that. But for me, the deals were were more important early on because I knew I could make money in various different ways once I found one. Gotcha. So five years ago, you were doing your first deal and today you have over I what? Mean, a couple hundred doors. I mean, 250 plus doors. We're closing on one in a couple of weeks here. That'll be a, a small partner in. It's 204 units actually in Phoenix with uh, with a local group to, in Phoenix that we're, raising, we're helping them raise money to close. But I think it's funny because a lot of people talk about units. I personally own about a hundred doors. I'm a you know partner in the other two hundred, right? I'm on the okay. active side, but I don't solely own them. So <laughs> I think it's like mm-hmm. misleading to say that sometimes. Well, I mean, you're, you're you're still affiliated with them. You're still in the transaction. You're still in the deal. So although if you're twenty five percent owner, ten percent owner, whatever, you still have ownership stake in those properties. So I mean, that's that's awesome to go from one three unit five years ago to now nearly 300 doors. I mean, that's, that's amazing. You definitely should feel accomplished. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's a constant, I'm constantly asking myself the question, what's the next step up? What's the next rung on the ladder? What can I do next? That's a bit challenging to myself. And for a long time that was doing more deals. And then for a little bit more time, that was just trying to do slightly larger deals. And then that was working with investors. And then that was doing even larger deals. So there's always one little step. And I kept trying to push my my comfort zone a little bit. And I think that's that's how you grow quickly or scale in any business is you have to understand that the next yep. step, you don't know what's going to happen and you just got to keep taking it and making the mistakes and learning. And then then you figure it out at that level and then you take another step, you get you know whacked by some mistake and then you figure it out and then you keep going. But, but yeah, I think when it's when you're really intentional about what needs to be done in your business to continue growing, it, it becomes a lot easier once you have that roadmap. Yeah. Yeah. And what one of the things that I want people to take away from this conversation is understanding that using your network and building out that network for capital, for deals and things like that, it's not easy, but it is easy. I mean, because it's, it's getting out there and it's talking to people and it's making sure you have the right verbiage, having that conversation, because there's tons of money out there. You just got to be able to facilitate the transactions and be that syndicator to show people, hey, look, this is what we can produce or provide for you if you want to be a part of this deal. These are the returns that that you possibly can expect, no hard numbers or anything like that. And this is the areas that we're looking in. And once we find it, we'll definitely contact you and let you, what we can do to work with you in order to make this deal happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that one of the one of the the best decisions I made along the way here was was getting really, really intentional about just sharing what I'm doing, <laughs> like just yep, at its yep. most fundamental level, talking to people what, about what I'm doing, sharing what I'm doing, asking people for referrals, asking people to help me out with what I was looking for, whether that's deals or investors or whoever. And I started getting active on social media with that stuff. And this is about a year and a half ago now, probably late 2019, I was like, I find that anytime I post on like LinkedIn asking for a referral, I get one. (laughs) So I was like, I just got to start doing stuff like that more. And I think that that's something that new investors feel nervous about doing is because they're like, I don't really know them. I don't know the business that well yet. Maybe I've only done one deal. I don't want to call myself like a true, you know, real estate investor or something like that. I think that the quicker you get out of that and the quickly, the, I mean, I guess just the faster you open your mind up to, everybody could probably help me out with something. I just need to be so vocal about what I'm doing with everyone I interact with. I think you you start to get results a lot faster. Yeah. And and part of that was just having that, I don't want to say inferiority complex, but I I can't remember what's, what it's called. That's definitely a thing though. I I don't know. I don't know what word you're looking for, but (laughs) but just calling it that works. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's escaping me right now. But yeah, even if you've only done one deal, there's hundreds and thousands of people out there that wish that they can do that first deal. And you went through the process. When I say you, I mean, the person that done that one deal went through the process and now what to expect from closing, what to expect from the title agent, what to expect from financing and everything like that. So although you're not way up here, 
you still are, have a higher level of education and understanding than someone that has never done a deal. Yeah. You know, so. I mean, without a doubt. And maybe you were looking for imposter syndrome because I'm, I'm there gonna, you I'm, go. That's what I was, I was <laughs> looking for. <laughs> I was just going to say, because I think, I think everybody gets that pretty frequently is they're timid to talk about what they're doing, especially with people that might be a little bit more experienced than them, because you're just, you, maybe you don't feel like you belong quite yet. I mean, I had that big time when I was doing a lot of my own deals, but I wasn't, I had, I had yet to raise money from people and, and actually mm-hmm. work with investors. I mean, I had, I had the imposter syndrome in a way when I was talking to investors and talking to brokers that were going to you know, potentially bring me those deals. Yep. And after a while, I was just like, act as if, act as if you've done this before and mm-hmm. don't mislead people about your experience, especially if you're working with investors. I mean, be honest about what you're right. doing, but act as if you have the confidence of someone that's been doing this for a while, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess a lot of people will will call that fake until you make it in a way. I don't think you should fake it. I think you should be honest about what you're doing and, and your story and all that. But like, but don't feel like just because you haven't done it doesn't mean you can't do it. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you just got to exude that confidence. And when people when people see that you have that confidence, then they're going to say, okay, well, yeah, I want to partner with this person because I know that they can that they can make it happen. Exactly. Yep. So Axel, give us one horror story about a deal that you wish you shouldn't have done or kind of looking back hindsight, man, I probably botched that deal. I mean, I got a few, but I'll give you one. I'll give you, I'll give you one where I really got, I got smoked on it. So I think it was like second year in the business. I'd done three or four deals. I bought a duplex at auction where it was one of those foreclosure auctions. You couldn't walk it. You could kind of peek in the windows and do that whole thing. Yep. While we were under contract, this was in the wintertime. I mean, I think, I think we closed in March, but put it under contract or we had our bid accepted in like late December, early January. And this is this is the Northeast here, so this isn't too uncommon. But it's very common for 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 unoccupied properties. But basically, we closed, walked in the front door with our locksmith to find the entire place flooded. Wow! <laughs> uh, pipes burst. The it wasn't winterized properly, so just immediately our rehab budget just doubled. Right, just day one, like we walked in and it was just double. And we we knew that we were probably gonna have to replace a lot of the plumbing, but we didn't think that they would have burst while we were yeah. under contract. <laughs> so there was a finished basement apartment and that was five feet deep of water. So Ooh. we were just, I mean, the water was barely on, but it was running for a month with burst pipes. So, wow. I mean, that was a bad one. And there was a lot of other things we learned on that too. I mean, even once we got that situation fixed, I didn't vet the contractor. We hired enough and and I gave them a little bit too much leash and I wasn't too, I, I didn't oversee them, you know, quite okay. enough. I, I I like to call managing rehabs is just babysitting. And I wasn't a great babysitter. I was kind of letting the toddlers run around. I was only up, I was about an hour from where I lived, which also isn't great. And I was only up there maybe two times a week. And let me tell you when I wasn't there, they weren't there. So, so it was tough. So the timeline got extended. I ended up having to fire that contractor because he was doing the work poorly. The second guy I brought on, he was good. He was well-qualified, but he was on multiple jobs at the same time. So he was even taking a harder, longer time to get it done. When we went to go sell it, the the city came in and caused a fuss about, I think it was like the heating system and how it was installed when it was just installed fine. And and we had another person from the city come out and they were like, oh yeah, no, that first person missed this. This is actually fine. However, since the first person had a problem with it, the buyer that we had on the deal fell out. So fell we out. lost, we yeah. fell out of contracts. We had to go out and find another buyer, even though there wasn't a problem. It was just a lot of things that that went wrong. But I think that if we're going to give people something to take away from this crappy story, it's really, really vet your contractors and stay on top of them, especially on a, on a significant rehab. Like you just, you just need to, if you can't be on site at least a few times a week, like there's got to be some other checks and balances system you have in place to manage that process, especially if it's one of your first times working with somebody and there's nothing that can go worse than than crappy work the first time and having to redo work. Like obviously that's the worst, but but just in terms of the cost of doing the work again, the cost of extending a deal, if you have private money or hard money, is almost going to be, that's going to be more of a, of a pain point than just the incremental cost of doing the rehab again. I factored, I think I factored out, I think our cost of owning that on a daily basis was like $85. Was just, that was our interest cost in our loan on a daily basis was 85 bucks. And um, 
kept getting pushed month, month, yeah. month. And that's just, that adds up more so than the cost of the rehab. Yeah. So. Longer you keep extending it, longer those interest payments got to be made and everything like that. Yeah. So, I mean, time is money, obviously, but like time is really money when you're doing rehabs, yep, whether yep. it's a, a multifamily project or a flip or whatever, make sure you work with great people. Just do not skimp on the people, especially early in your career when you don't know what you don't know. Like you, you need great people to kind of help you, especially if you're going to be paying them. You're going to pay trustworthy, really competent I, people and overpay them in the beginning to learn like the process and what needs to happen. And then you can spot issues in the future if you decide to work with maybe less expensive folks, but that was a, tr that was a tough one. That got me out of flipping completely. That was, I think maybe the third <laughs> flip I did. And I was like, Nope, never again. I'm Done, just, huh? this isn't for me. Yeah. I mean, I just, so multifamily from there on out. Well, that's, <laughs> that's good. Say. I mean, it's not good that you went through those problems, but it's good that you, that you noticed early on, like, Hey, but this is probably not, not my forte and let me move to something else. So yeah, Axel, we're going to wrap up here. We're going to put you on a hot seat real quick. Let's Answer these questions for me as quick as possible. But if you but if you need to expound a little bit, feel free to do so. Starting over, what would you do differently? That's a good question. I think that I would have I would have worked with investors sooner, or at least just tried to reframe my mindset to where like I was very I was open. And the, the biggest thing for me was anytime I worked with an investor, whether it was somebody who was investing in a deal long term or or doing private lending. I couldn't get out of the mindset that they were doing me a favor versus yeah. I'm bringing them an opportunity. Yep. And that was fundamentally something that took me forever to get over. And if I had just been more open to working with investors sooner, I would have scaled much faster. I would have done bigger deals. And looking back, I, I had the knowledge and the ability to do that much sooner, but I just couldn't tweak that one thing in my head. So I think that's what yeah. I would do differently if I was starting over. Yeah, that's key. And a lot of people have that. And that goes back to that imposter syndrome where you think, but this person is doing me a favor. So whatever they, whatever they provide for me, I'm thankful. I'm grateful for it. So what is one characteristic you believe every high producing investor should have? Just, just understanding the power of consistency in whatever you're doing, everything you're doing. I do real estate every day, seven days a week. Like I just, whether it's maybe I'm not working an eight hour day on a Sunday, but like I'm still maybe looking at a deal or sending a few emails or doing something every day. I don't, I'm not saying you have to right there, like for everybody out there, but like just understanding that you need to be doing something that's moving your business forward in some capacity on a daily basis. And just understanding that if you do that for a long period of time, you're going to be shocked at the results you get. Yep. 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 It's the small things. That's what I tell people. It's the small things that you do every day that you look back six, seven months down the road and you'd be like, wow, but I came a long way. So mm -hmm. Axel, how can we get in touch with you? I know you have a podcast, man. How, how, how could we get in touch with you to follow you to see, okay, man, I want to be a part of Axel's community and, and see what exactly what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the best ways is go follow me on Instagram at multifamily wealth on Instagram. Like you mentioned, I host a podcast, the multifamily wealth podcast. It's, you know, strictly multifamily podcast. We get into all things multifamily. You can look me up on LinkedIn, Axel Ragnarsson. Um, there's not going to be too many other ones, I don't think, on there. So you should be able to find gotcha. me pretty easily. <laughs> Shoot me an email if you want. Axel, A-X-E-L, at Brickleaf Properties, B-R-I-C-K-L-E-A-F, properties.com. And then a quick plug yep. for the podcast. If you go in there, if you go on there and leave a rating and a review... And then you screenshot that and shoot it over to me on my email. I'll just give you a copy of my, it's about a 30 page ebook I put together with a bunch of content about how I found, found finance, scaled my business and all that fun stuff. So I always got to okay. plug that too. <laughs> all right, guys. So go to Instagram, go to LinkedIn, go to the podcast. Axel got some, some really great things. I mean, going from in five years from one to 250 doors is amazing. So if you want to follow, that trend and, and follow Axel's trajectory, make sure you follow him and you'll understand exactly what he's doing, how he's doing it. So you can mirror those same steps and get to where he's at. So Axel, I appreciate it, man. So in parting, what is words of encouragement that you can tell a struggling investor that's looking to start syndicating, that's looking to start doing what you're doing, give them some words of encouragement. Yeah. First of all, I mean, I appreciate you having me on too, Marcus. This has been great. As for, as for a suggestion for somebody who's struggling, right? I think that understanding that this isn't easy and not expecting it to be easy is critical, which may not be that helpful for folks out there, but like 
took me two years of education to do a deal. Took me a year and a half to finally do a deal out of state that was large. This stuff takes time. Understanding that if you pair consistency with patience, you're going to get great results. Just keep plugging away on a daily basis. Figure out what your most important next step is to get to where you want to go. Just do that as many days in a row as you possibly can, and then just be patient and understand things are going to happen for you. All right, guys, you heard it right from Axel. You heard it right from Marcus. Get out there, be consistent, be patient, start doing deals, get your education up under your belt, and make sure you take action. So this is Marcus Maloney, the Equity King, signing off. Thank you. We love Equity Family. Remember, leave us a rating or review, five-star, hopefully. That way we know exactly what we're providing you. The content we're providing you is reaching those who need it. So remember, always enjoy the journey and I will see you next week. All right, guys, that was Axel Ragnarsson. Went from one door five years ago to over 250 right now. Who wouldn't want to learn from a person like that? So if you're looking to get into the multifamily space, you're looking to get into the passive income space, you want to move from transactional to passive income, that's a person that you should listen to. I am all about bringing the people on the show that I feel have the credibility and that's doing what either I'm not doing or something that you can learn from. So guys, connect with these people. You heard what he said. He said, consistency is key. Be persistent, the little things, and you will definitely start to see some fruit in your vineyard, in your garden, start to produce. So guys, get out there, take action. Remember to always enjoy the journey. Thank you for listening to today's show. I picked up some great actionable items and I'm sure you did as well. If so, let me know. You can always reach me via social media at facebook.com slash MRCS Maloney, Twitter at MRCS Maloney, and of course, IG at MRCS Maloney. You can also always reach me via email at mmaloney at equityri.com. Make sure you reach out to our guest as well. You can always find their contact information in the show notes below. If you have not subscribed already, what are you waiting for? Join the family. And while you're at it, leave us a five-star review. This is how we tell if we're providing you with what you need for your journey. If there's someone you would like for me to interview, or if there's a subject matter you would like for me to cover, please let me know. Finally, if you're looking for additional information about real estate investing, go to equityrealestateblog.com, also youtube.com slash Marcus Maloney. Until next time, family, always enjoy the journey.